From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. I've been kicking this idea around for a couple months about this place called Radiotopia. It's sort of my fantasy land where everything is radio and everything is very good. Radio is also a ghost medium, always on the fade, always slipping away, suspended in electromagnetic limbo. It feels like we're there, so welcome to Radiotopia. ReSound is a remix of documentaries, music, found sound, sound bites, and audio art from all over the world. We look overseas, underfoot, around the bend, anywhere the airwaves take us. Then we collect the best and each week give you an earful. Today, for the Radiohead and all of us, a virtual masterclass of how to make great radio from some of its most talented and entertaining artisans. Robert Krulwich, David Kestenbaum, Nancy Updike, Joe Frank, and more. A veritable who's who of public radio. We take you behind the scenes to the Third Coast Festival Conference, where producers come together to share their work, reveal their secrets, and teach each other how to make better radio stories. You might even find yourself tempted to make radio. So pay attention to the man and woman behind the curtain, because this is like getting the director's commentary on your favorite DVD, Coppola on The Godfather. Need I say more? Stay tuned. A lot of people here are radio producers. You know, you say, what the f*** am I doing for a two-minute radio piece? Working this? I mean, it's like um, carving a, a sculpture into a walnut, but, you know, in the, in the end, it's really, it's worth it. One of our favorite things about the Third Coast Festival Conference is hearing great producers talk about their favorite things about radio. And each year at our little Radiotopia, we invite someone to do just that. In 2006, it was the ever-brilliant Robert Krulwich, who, in a radio story, once illustrated the complex workings of the Federal Reserve by way of, what else? Opera. He's a reporter at NPR, has been a correspondent for CBS News and ABC News, and now, in addition to everything else, he's co-hosting WNYC's Radio Lab. One of Krulwich's favorite things is a favorite of ours, too, the work of producer Sean Cole of Weekend America and Marketplace. Here's Robert Krulwich. This topic, I was told, was uh, to find things that I love, and, and it's it's true that when you turn on the radio, whether it's commercial radio, television radio, or TV, the, there is this sort of noise that comes at you, which is the sort of same old, same old noise that the companies are all famous for. So you have the the commercial radio sound. And then they have the FM, the sort of NPR radio sound, which is just as distinctive and has this slightly sophisticated, semi-omniscient air. So... Uh, and, and, and that's fine, that's what these companies stand for in a way, but then every so often, from within this sort of sound that you hear, there's this suddenly, and it can, it, for different people it can be different things, but suddenly some sound just sort of steps out. It could be someone's voice, it could be someone's passion showing, it could be some particularly beautiful construct that somebody made. And suddenly, it's like some invisible voice kind of steps out of the radio and taps you very specifically on the shoulder and says, listen to me. And then you just turn, and you, you, you find yourself noticing. And the magical thing of that, of what it is that makes me notice, for me, I like danger. I, I mean, uh, I, like, I have always um, never fit in particularly anywhere, ABC or anywhere else. 
CBS, I remember Dan Rather saying, you can come onto my hurricane special, but I don't want you to bring any balloons. I thought, what? I said, what if I ever brought a balloon? He said, well, you know what I mean by balloons, like those kind of things. I said, oh. So I... I, I know that I don't quite fit the, the mold, but I, 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 every so often you run into people, and uh, Ellen, um, um, the person I, I work with at Radiolab, told me um, to check out this guy, Sean Cole, from WBUR, uh, whom I'd heard of, but I didn't, so I just went and downloaded stuff, and I wrote him, and he sent me some other things, and uh, I noticed that there was something astonishing. It's very hard to begin anything, to begin a piece on the radio or on TV. Because, you know, your hello is a very important moment. It's sort, of the, it's sort of like in eighth grade, it's like stepping from the boys' section to the girls' section and asking somebody to dance. It's fraught with all kinds of, what should I do? How do I do this? And Sean, um, <laughs> I've never, I, frankly, he's beyond saving, actually. He, um, <laughs> well, for example, he was sent by, uh, I think it was Studio 360, to do a, a piece on a piece of art in which you had to, the, the way you would appreciate the piece of art is you'd go to sleep in it, in apparently the exhibition space. So how many people would actually learn to appreciate a sculpture by going to sleep in it all night? I'm not sure. Probably be, if the thing ran for 21 days, they'd lucky, I'm sure, if they got 10 appreciators. But um, Sean was sent. So you wonder, like, how do you start a story like this? Well, you could say, well, I was sent So can we just run just the very, very beginning of this? First, you'll hear the host introducing him. Lots of artists have depicted their dreams in paintings and novels and films, but Marina Abramovich makes your dreams the center of her work. She recently installed a piece called Dream Bed at the Rose Museum outside Boston. She invited visitors to lie down inside the dream bed and then record whatever happened. WBUR Sean Cole decided to stop in and take a nap. Check one, two, three. Now, how many times do you hear a piece of <coughs> I just said, whoa, what was that? You know, and uh, I mean, it's true that if you, you might do <coughs> to be heard, I mean, that was what you do if, if there were two people talking and you wanted to interrupt them, you <coughs> like, I'm here, but I'd never uh, heard that. And uh, then the next little section right after his cough, is some kind of private soliloquy where he as a reporter is thinking, how am I going to do this? Oh, I can't do this. Am I going to be able to go to sleep? It's, just listen to this. It's, just, it's, it's a little, it's like a parenthesis after the cough. <coughs> Check, one, two, three. I'm worried that I'm going to get to the museum and that I'm not going to dream anything. <laughs> Moreover, what if I, I can't even fall asleep? You go, hello, hello, this is a radio show. I remember once I was doing a, 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 uh, I was doing a piece, it was in the morning, one of the breakfast shows, and I was hosting it, and uh, they they'd brought a pet. It was one of those, you know, you can, you can bake, you can talk to the Secretary of State, they bring in a funny animal. So they brought in a, uh, a, a, a burrowing uh, rat of some sort, maybe it was a ferret. And uh, so I, I had the ferret, and I'm fine with animals, and I'm petting the ferret, and then I'm talking to the purpose, and the ferret used the opportunity to go up my sleeve into my underarm area, where it began nestling and tickling me. And uh, I, I lost all sense that I, 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 I stopped paying attention to the person next to me, and I began looking at the ferret, and I'm looking at, so I'm looking at my underarm, and of course, as anyone tuning in at this point wouldn't know what was going on, because there was nothing happening except the man looking at his underarm and pulling at his underarm. And the guy in the, in the earphone said, 
Robert, you are not watching television, you are on television. <laughs> and uh, I think Sean, uh, Sean gets, gets close to that. So, so he's, he's begun the piece coughing, counting, and then worrying to himself whether this is worthy of his time or something. And you, know, you, you think, like, are you, do you know that you're on? <laughs> and then here's what happens next, I think. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. I recorded that around midnight, the night before I got into the dream bed. Then I went to sleep and dreamt nothing, not that I remember. The next day, I went over to the museum, still worrying. Curator Rafaela Plato did her best to be sympathetic. I wish I could take the pressure off of you. I can only tell you, try to relax. If you don't sleep, you don't sleep. So the piece begins with the person he's supposed to interview consoling him about his reporting assignments. <laughs> In the next story I found, uh, described a, um, a, a, a situation that happens on and immediately after the Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, he was interested in plumbers because apparently among the plumbing community, Thanksgiving is a very big day, just as it is at retail. Uh, the difference being that the plumbers have to solve problems that are caused on Thanksgiving. The problems are that people cook too much and then have to throw away, and sometimes they forget about the, I mean, in New York City we don't have those things, but you know what are those things, you put it in the drain and it chops it up, whatever those are called. Disposals, right, garbage disposals. So uh, people put in chicken and turkey and stuffing, and they put in Drano and liquid plumber, and so all these things kind of become a kind of horrible soup, and then they get stuck in there, and then the plumbers are called, and they have to come and open up the, the plumber. Now, the thought, the, the, he had to begin this piece. Again, it's the beginnings where Sean gets, I think, in the most interesting trouble. Uh, for some reason, he decided that he ought to clear, he said, I'm going to be talking about plumbers, and you know what plumbers do, but this isn't going to be about what plumbers normally do. Well, what do plumbers normally do is they deal with uh, a word you're just not allowed to mention. Now, the, the most awkward thing to do is say, let's talk about, ooh, I can't talk about that. And that's exactly the way he began the piece. Let's talk about, and then he said, can't talk about that. So here's how it starts. Well, first of all, it's not because of, you know, uh, how should I put it? You know, excrement's kind of a weird word. Fecal matter is a little clinical. Waste is okay. Anyway, it's not because of that. And Joe Wood of Hub Plumbing and Mechanical in Dorchester, Mass, knows that's what you're thinking, because he says that's what everyone thinks when they hear the word plumber. I drove around with him to a couple of house calls earlier this month. Right. Get you in the mood, I guess. So, so the, the, now, then he goes off, and you find out about how the the plumbing, you know, what the plumbers do, and all the busyness of plumbers on Thanksgiving, and da da da. And now it's time for this piece to end. And he can't quite get a weight of the thought that they're probably are great poop stories too, uh, but that wasn't our subject this time. And so he goes back to this very shy plumber and says, "Let's talk. Do we have any other stories? Well, we could, but I don't like to say those. You know, talk about that." And then. He then finishes the piece saying, let's talk about that, except that he uses this as an opportunity to totally blow up the show that he's a part of. Now, I know that Marketplace is a snarky kind of show, and it loves being bad, but this is beyond bad. <laughs> Listen to what happens here. This is the end. On the positive side, both Maka and John Wood of Hub Plumbing say there's a lot of cash in performing gastric bypass surgery on so many drain systems, not to mention all the other problems. I mean, really, John Wood refused to mention them. We're on radio here, so I don't want to get too descriptive in my, uh, in my stories. I could tell you lots of stories. Um, but I can I, just bleep stuff out, you know. You can, you can bleep stuff out? Oh, well, 
I, I really don't want to discuss to discuss your listener base. They're listening to a business show. They're disgusted already. Yeah, right, exactly. Who wants to spend their time doing that? Yeah, I mean that's just gross. <laughs> In Boston, I'm Sean Cole from Marketplace. So he finishes the piece saying, you know, we're like this place stinks, uh, for want of a better word. I thought, God, I I wondered whether they would air that because it was on, you know, it was on. Uh, so I asked him. I said, did they air it? He goes, oh yeah. So, I, I, can you imagine trying to do that at CBS or something? I mean, it was um, impossible. Um, the, uh, there's another one where this is just, uh, this is just like, it's kind of like magical thinking. A, the American Express Company decided to release a credit card in the Boston area, specifically in the Boston area, called the Clear Card, which was kind of a metaphor. It would be clear in plastic, but that was just to suggest that your financial transactions would be so transparent that you would easily know how much you had and how much you owed, and it would all be just so clear. Uh, it was particularly marketed at, at Boston. Now, it, it was stupid, and it didn't mean any of the things, and it was, you know, a normal stupid marketing story. But listen to how it starts. American Express is crowing about its newest credit card program, just not loud enough for too many people to hear. Amex launched the first advertising push for its Clear Card in Boston and Dallas last week. The company says Bostonians in particular are looking for more clarity when it comes to finances. Amex says it knows this because it surveyed 400 Boston residents with questions like, are you looking for more clarity in your finances? Marketplace's Sean Cole saw the light. See, because the card's called clear, so they're like, are you looking for more clarity when it comes to finances? Get it? So, like, anyway, Amex did the survey back in February. He just, I don't know, he just did a Southie accent for the fun of it, I guess. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything else. He can do accents. So, can you say that one more time? I think it's the next one. I think I repeated it. See, because the card's called clear, so they're like, are you looking for more clarity when it comes to finances? Get it? So, like, anyway, Amex did the survey back in February. Uh... Uh, there was another one, I, I won't play it to you, but there was another one where some person invented a, uh, a, a, a clock that rang, an alarm clock that rang, and then leapt off the night table and moved at a safe distance from you, and then rang again. <laughs> and uh, he opens it by saying, let me ask you a question. Um, why do you hate people? LAUGHTER uh, so I, I kind of, I think it's kind of neat that somebody has absolutely no superego at all. Robert Krolwich talking about Sean Cole at the 2006 Third Coast Festival Conference. We also love Sean Cole and have a bunch of his stuff from ReSound on our website. You can hear it at thirdcoastfestival.org. Today, we take you behind the scenes at the conference to hear the secrets of great producers as they swap ideas and stories. One of the highlights of the conference is, of course, getting people who are really good at what they do and convincing them to reveal all their secrets. In 2005, NPR science reporter David Kestenbaum regaled fellow producers with his rules of how to explain complex ideas in four minutes or so, especially if it has to do with particle physics. Since he has a PhD in particle physics, it's easy for him. But his gift is making it easy for us English majors to understand, too. This is how he does it. David Kestenbaum. I think you really have to kill yourself to get good tape when you have a complicated story. I mean, kill yourself and, and threaten to kill the other person if you have to. Um, Larry Abramson, who sits next to me, used to work for Voice of America, and he said their target audience was always a potato farmer in Rhodesia. 
and I think it should be like an illiterate blind potato farmer in Rhodesia. I mean, I wish that everybody had the same standards we have for science reporting, which is like you assume people know almost nothing. When I open the business section, sometimes like I have to read a story two or three times to actually understand it. So I wish someone would more often would do the courtesy of just 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 explaining things uh, a little bit. This is my colleague John Nielsen, who covers the environment, and he always imagines he's telling a story to his uncle, who's intelligent but has a short attention span and is often drunk. <laughs> so this is John. He's been sent out on an assignment to talk about avian flu. No, not avian flu. SARS? West Nile. Sorry. I get my diseases you shouldn't actually worry about mixed up. Um, <laughs> West Nile. And it, was, uh, it had killed some birds in the zoo. And so people, there, there was this minor hysteria. Is it safe to go to the zoos? Is it safe to go to the zoos? And so John was sent out to do that story, and he's talking to someone at the zoo about is it safe. I guess the important statement that we want people to understand. The, oh, the important statement that we want people to understand is that zoos are part of the community in which they exist, and that community either has risk, has risk, or does not have risk. And there's no difference within the zoo boundaries than with outside the zoo boundaries. So we actually are. Oh, you didn't say that right. The community, just do that again, that was great, though. I mean, no, no, here, look, I'm, I told you this already, but I'm, I'm at the end of the bar, I'm really drunk, uh, I want you to make this point, I want you to hold my interest, but I, you know, I am a real dumb shit, and I'm going to fall over and get a hematoma if you don't give this to me, so, and I'm convinced that I'm going to die if I go to the zoo, okay, if I go to the zoo, I'm going to die, buddy, I don't care who you are, you know, so you tell me, you got, you got, 10 seconds to tell me why I don't have to worry about the zoos. Zoos are not any different than the surrounding area in which they exist. There's no reason to believe that, that coming inside a zoo wall presents a greater risk than being outside the zoo walls. They're part of the community in which they exist. The animals here are just as susceptible as the people, and it's, it's, it's a citywide or a region-wide thing, not a specific hotspot. How do you know that? We know that because we test our animals a lot. We test for mosquitoes. We look for mosquitoes. We actually do more surveillance inside the zoo than the cities do or the counties do outside the zoo. So we actually know our risk much more than, than say, another part of the city. And it's low. And it's very low, yeah. Thanks. See, I'm helping you. It's media oh, training. That's right, that's right. I've played that for people, and, and some people are scandalized. They say, you're telling him what to say. And I say, no, he's not. That guy doesn't talk normally the way he was talking at the beginning. We're helping him talk the way he actually talks. John's not sticking words in his mouth. He's, he's reminding him what English sounds like, right? And the other thing you hear there is that it's much more interesting when John's interacting with him, right? And when John asks a question, not like some of the times when I see people move from print to radio, they, they say, Mr. President, sir, it seems, you know, you're, you're going to get a really stilted answer if you ask a question that way. John says, how do you know that? I mean, that's the question. How do you know that? And he says, we, we, test, we test our animals more than anybody does in the outside world. You know, it's a great answer, right? And so that's what makes it into the piece is the very end of uh, him sort of explaining and then John saying, how do you know that? And he says, and it's low, really low. And that's... You know, and that's a good piece of tape there. Another lesson in there is that uh, if you listen at least to NPR, we very rarely have reporters asking questions. There's a lot of discussion about whether there was sort of a rule that you're not allowed to have reporters asking questions. 
they, they say there's not a rule, but we don't actually hear reporters asking questions a lot. <laughs> I, I think that's the reporter's fault. And I think it has to be sort of well done. Uh, I have a personal rule about it, which is that it can't be in there to make the reporter look good. It has to be to help the other person look good. They have to have a better response. You know, you can't be the one who's like on stage there. You're there just sort of poking or interacting. You know, I think it's weird not to have reporters interacting with the people you interviewed. Otherwise, it's this totally strange beast, the, the radio story, where you have like someone reading something, and then you have somebody talking like to the void, and then you have somebody reading something and somebody talking. Like, Were they in the same room? Do they know each other? You know? And a boring piece of tape is much more interesting, even if there's just a moment of interaction with the reporter. So I think, if, if I go back, probably most of my stories have a moment of me asking some quick thing and somebody responding. It's often just the best piece of tape. When I listen to my interview, that's the part that that jumps out. Um, it, and it makes them sort of human. You know, they're responding to something. I just, it's, I'm, I'm amazed that people don't do that more. John was also pitching his questions at a very low level. You can't ask too stupid a question. You don't want to look really stupid. But on the other hand, you've got to get good tape, right? And there are ways to ask simple questions that are real good questions, but just ask them, just ask them simply. Get in a fight with them. But it doesn't have to be you getting in a fight with them. You're just playing devil's advocate. And you can make it clear from your voice that you're saying, but... You know, what if we, if we do make a new set of nuclear weapons? Um, you know, do you worry about what other countries will do? Or why do we need them? Or, you know, you just, you can, you can ask, you can be sort of incredulous without it being you incredulous. So it becomes clear that you're sort of a proxy for the other side. And you owe that to them anyway, because they're going to be up against people screaming at them in the story. Also, uh, I don't use people's titles. Uh, this is a rule that Danny's Wordling has. If you're interviewing a senator, you don't say, Senator, what do you think about such and such a bill? You say John McCain or, you know, it's a little odd to be using their first name alone, kind of. Susan Stanberg, I think, has a rule. She just doesn't, tries not to interview politicians at all. <laughs> this is another strategy. Another strategy, another trick is uh, the fake end to the interview, where the interview is sort of not going so well, maybe, or you get something that's usable and the time's running out and you say, oh, thank, you say, thanks very much and just pronounce your name for me so I do it right, okay, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then you say, and when, you, when so-and-so told you that, what was your, you know, you can go back it takes the pressure off because they think, oh, there, it's done. It went okay. And you're not tricking them. I mean, the tape is still rolling and you, know, you can make it explicit at the end if you're worried that there's been some misunderstanding. But somehow, like, having an end to it, you're in, you're in overtime. You're in extended play. You know, somehow it's like free time. It's like when you stay up extra late at night. You know? There's something sometimes special about that time after the apparent sort of end to the interview. And then you can go on and talk for 15 minutes more if you want. And there's one time... It was during the uh, election, and you know, which came down to Florida. And I was I was interviewing a guy who edited a journal called Election Technology, which is suddenly very relevant. And but the interview was really technical. And at the end, I said, "So I said, what's the and what's the journal called again?" And he said, and he gave me the name, Election Something Something Technology. He said, "My wife says it's the most boring thing to read in the universe." He said, "But it's actually really important, see." And so, so then you you know, you bet that was the first piece of tape in the story. <laughs> so uh, let me talk about scenes. I know if you're a reporter, you often get sent out to press conferences, right? And so there was one about, uh, it was a scientific paper. They had finished the genetic sequence for Arabidopsis. It was the first plant. But it wasn't the first thing we'd sequence. They would sequence the yeast and all these other things. And, you know, the Human Genome Project was well underway. And it was, it was like, what could I possibly say? Who cares that it's a plant, right? Um, and they'd sent out a terrible press release, which gave, like, the top ten reasons why 
you know, you know, because it will help cure disease. And you think, no, you know, really, you can study mice if you want to study human disease. And there was a press conference, which was the kiss of death. So I called around and I said, who is coming to the press conference who's actually like interesting and human? And someone told me. So I called him and I said, when are you getting in? He said, nine at night. I said, what hotel? And so I stayed like at work and I biked over to his hotel. And I went up to his room to do an interview, thinking it would be better just to get him one-on-one. And when I got up there, he had his laptop open, he had a PowerPoint presentation up, and it was for top, the top 10 reasons why they sequenced Arabidopsis. So uh, this is, this, I'm going to play you the first two minutes of the story. After a six-year international effort, plant biologists have marked a major milestone. Researchers have deciphered the entire genome of a weed. Its proper name is Arapidopsis. It's the first complete genetic map of a plant. NPR's David Kestenbaum reports. People always ask Joe Ecker, why Arabidopsis? Why not the rose? Why not iceberg lettuce? Ecker is a biologist at the Salk Institute. He was in D.C. for yesterday's announcement. On a laptop in his hotel room, he's pulled up a top ten list of reasons why Arabidopsis. Mostly, it was easy, he says. The plant has a small, compact genome, but it is related to broccoli, and its genes could be used to design crops that would grow almost anywhere. Arabidopsis is found from the equator to the Arctic, and there are a number of varieties of Arabidopsis will grow under a whole host of different conditions, so cold, hot, increased salt, etc. Ecker says you could probably find one growing in a sidewalk crack. So we go on a little field biology expedition. Ecker checks the soil of plants in the hotel lobby. No luck. Outside in the cold night air, the sidewalk cracks are bare, so Ecker picks through a bed of decorative cabbages on 11th Street. It's kind of dark here. No, it looks like the gardeners have done a too good of a job of weeding. You know, one would pull it out if you saw it. It's a garden variety weed. It's a good weed. It grows fast, it sets seeds, and it gets the heck out of there. That's another reason plant geneticists are fond of Arabidopsis. You can cram a lot of them in a small space, and they reproduce quickly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was something you never would have got at a press conference, right? And I think scenes, when you have them, they can't be gratuitous. Like, I often hear these stories where there's, like, ambient sound and something like that, but it's not really relevant to the story. Like, a scene has to make a point. And so, if I were to just run down the list and say they go everywhere, and then quiz you later, you'd never remember that they go everywhere. However, if that fact is embedded in it, you remember the guy digging through the decorative cabbage on 11th Street, you know? And that scene embodies this, this you know, important piece of information, which is that they're studying it because maybe you could, you know, grow zucchinis in the Arctic because of this, you know, because it's a plant that grows everywhere. And the story ends up being actually about why the heck, how ignored plant biologists feel and how everything around you is a plant. And, you know, he sees a telephone pole, he thinks that was once a tree. He said, basically, everything we eat is a, you know, it's something that it's a plant or something that just ate a plant. He said, all the drugs come from plants, you know, and it's just a big picture feature. It's not about what they wanted it to be from the press conference, right? So, you know, if you have a day before a press conference or something, like, just try and find something else to do. You know, maybe there's something interesting in the press conference, but the press conference is probably not the way to best tell the story. You know, maybe that's the event that they're unveiling some new project, but that is not, you know, you're lucky if you get good tape from the press conference. There's something awful about someone being at a microphone in front of a group of people. (laughs) I mean, like you know, presidential speeches, you're just like praying for someone to slip up, right? It's like watching, you know, the changing of the guard at Buckingham Palace or something. Like, you're just praying for someone to blink at the wrong time, for something real to happen. 
And if you're there interacting with the microphone, that'll happen. You know? And if they're standing up reading off a of PowerPoint, it's never going to happen. So uh, if there isn't a scene, make one. You're listening to David Kestenbaum speaking at the Third Coast Festival Conference in 2005. In the question and answer period during his talk, someone got up and said, as a science reporter, doesn't it ever get frustrating that you're basically always interviewing a bunch of white guys? And this is what he said. My bigger frustration is just like the fact that we constantly have academics and experts on that kills me. I hate that. Like, I just want real people. Just like real ordinary. I did this story about um, the Hubble taking them some new picture and the and the astrophysicists were interested in the teeniest dots on it. But the thing is, you look at it, it just blows your mind because it's got galaxies at all these completely odd angles, and you realize nobody organized the damn universe. It's just, like, entire galaxies, and it's, like, 50 of them. And nobody, there was no voice of amazement there. And so it was in Baltimore, and I was taking the train back, and so I just went through and interviewed everybody in the damn car, and I showed them the picture. And a lot of people were very kind of NPR, you know, they were like, oh, I think this is really great work, and, you know, it was terrible. And finally there's this guy who was like, this is amazing. This is amazing. He said like 37 times. He said, you know what this means? This means we all got to love each other. He was just great. <laughs> but, you know, you got to work. You got to, because like, I'm sort of a shy person. And like, I kind of want to like get it and go home. But you got to just like go to the next person. You got to be like, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't good enough. You know, and uh, people, people, uh, I don't know if you're like in New York, I used to be intimidated. It turns out everyone's really, it's a really nice town. We once did this uh total sidebar, uh, video scavenger hunt. You, everyone gets, each teams get video camera, you have to go capture certain things. One was a subway car full of people singing. Sort of terrifying, right, to try and do. But it turns out if you just stand up and say, I'm from Ohio, it's my uh, father's birthday, and I'd like, and it, I'm sending him a video, and I'd want, I'd like everyone, if we could get the whole car singing happy birthday, that'd be really great. <laughs> and, or like, we, we, and it was so much fun, we kept doing it, even though we had it on tape. We, like, we did, you know, New York, New York, like, and they were like, you couldn't believe it. Entire subway car full of people in Manhattan in the middle of the day, singing. You know, make life interesting. Like, it's so much more fun. Like, that's one of the great things of being a reporter. Is it's forced me to sort of live this way, which I wouldn't normally if it wasn't my job, you know. And if I didn't, like, the terror is getting back to your desk without good tape. That, to me, is the terror. It means you're going to have to carry it all with writing, and at some point, it's going to be half boring people talking, so... That was David Kestenbaum at the 2005 Third Coast Festival Conference. Now, at the beginning of David's talk, you heard a little piece of tape by John Nielsen, an NPR science desk reporter who was doing a piece about West Nile virus. And this piece of tape has become a little bit legendary amongst public radio producers. And one of the reasons why is because it's used as an example of how to get the best answer you can out of an interview. Let's hear a little bit of it again. You didn't say that right. The community, just do that again. That was great, though. I mean, no, no, here, look. I'm, I told you this already, but I'm, I'm at the end of the bar. I'm really drunk. Uh, I want you to make this point. I want you to hold my interest. But, I, you know, I am a real dumb shit, and I'm going to follow and get a hematoma if you don't give this to me. So, and I'm convinced that I'm going to die if I go to the zoo, okay? If I go to the zoo, I'm going to die, buddy. I don't care who you are. You know, so you tell me, you got, you got 10 seconds to tell me why I don't have to worry about the zoos. So this interview outtake by John Nielsen has really come to have a life of its own. It was played not only in the David Kestenbaum talk that you just heard, but it was also played in a talk by Daniels Wordling, and it appeared on transom.org, a public radio website. So 
John was a little bit nervous about playing this in front of a mass audience because it kind of appears that he's really, really coaching this guy to get the answer that he wants. So we called John and said, we're the drunk at the end of the bar, and you've got 10 seconds to tell us why we shouldn't be alarmed that you're doing all this coaching to get the answer that you want. This is what he said. There is the, what do you call it, the reporter uncertainty principle that comes into play whenever you stick a big microphone in somebody's face. You know, you change reality by, by walking into the picture. We try to find this shorthand way to change people back into what they were before we showed up. I'm talking, I'm going on, I'm watching him to see if he's relaxing. He's watching me to figure out, you know, he knows what I'm doing, and he's just composing himself. And he's thinking, oh, okay, yeah, I can be blunt about this, because he was afraid of getting the answer wrong and getting in trouble. And he didn't have any reason to be afraid because he knew better than anybody else what the answer was, and it was the answer he wanted to be able to give. So I let him. Do you feel flattered, happy, embarrassed, humiliated that this piece of tape has become so um, well heard by yes, radio producers? all of those. <laughs> 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 and um, do you have any additional pieces of tape for us to play at next year's conference? <laughs> Otherwise, this could be your legacy, you know. I know. I haven't, haven't, I haven't pretended to be the drunk guy for a while. Mm. I mean, I do, when I do stories, I think about that drunk guy at the end of the bar. I write for him. Or I write for, I write for my grandfather, who had the, an incredible capacity to become bored and turn the radio off. Because, you know, that's the secret of the radio stuff. How many times have you been listening to a piece on public radio? And then, you know, you, you lose your focus for a fraction of a second and then 10 minutes later you wonder what happened to that piece why is sylvia pajoli on now you know <laughs> and the thing is if you just you can't go back and read it again if you lose the listener they are just out the airlock deep in space and you're not going to get them back that's my theory <laughs> <laughs> it's my story and i'm sticking with it and no i'm not drunk now <laughs> John Nielsen from the NPR Science Desk. If you want to hear David Kestenbaum's entire talk that featured John's legendary outtake, you can hear it on our website, all 90 minutes, including all the parts that were too risky for radio. Our address is thirdcoastfestival.org. And while you're there, send us an email with your comments and questions. Our address is resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Great writing is the key to any kind of storytelling, particularly if you have no pictures or illustrations to hide behind. Now, on the radio, with just a few minutes to tell a really big story, writing is paramount. Nancy Updike, who works with This American Life, All Things Considered, The New York Times, among others, is really good at telling stories by pairing good interviews with great writing, and even not-so-good interviews with really great writing. She spoke at the 2006 conference in a session called Die, Mediocrity, Die. I'd like to start with, with beginnings. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to ignore a radio story? This happens insidiously without your even realizing it. The story will start and you will just find yourself a few minutes later having no idea what happened in the story. You, you don't care. It's just voices and noises and you're cooking and you're dusting and making lists of things to do. 
And once you get out of the story, it's really hard, I find, to get back in because, you, you know, you've missed some plot points. The characters are kind of mysterious. You just think, ah, oh, whatever, I'll wait till the next one comes on, and if that one's interesting, I'll pay attention. So this mental drift, I would argue, is the terrifying enemy that we are all facing when we sit down to write the beginning of a radio story. And his demon minions are always trying to intimidate us into making bad choices about how to start the story, like telling the story chronologically, even though that's not the best way to tell this particular story, or starting with a piece of tape that's kind of boring, but it seems like for some reason we think we have to start with that piece of tape. And with a little more thought, oftentimes you can come up with a way to write into the better piece of tape, the more exciting piece of tape that for some reason you had convinced yourself had to come later. So I'm going to play three beginnings, three attempts to defeat this enemy. Until he was seven years old, Daniel Solomon slept sitting up. This wasn't because upright was a particularly comfortable position or because some exotic medical condition prevented him from straightening at the waist. It was just because Daniel didn't have another option. For the first seven years of his life, he lived in a crib in an orphanage in Romania. I was hired to interview men and women in the state of Utah who receive Medicaid support for treatment of mental illnesses generally diagnosed as schizophrenia. I had little understanding of schizophrenia before I began, and I have little more understanding now. I took the job because I had no other. I took the job because I just quit my steady job, my professional job, after realizing that what I wanted more than anything was to put my boss on the floor and stand on his throat and watch him gag. Then my wife moved out, took the kids and everything. She said, I've thought about it, and I really think it's the best thing for me at this time in my life. This story is like one of those Russian dolls where there's always a smaller one inside. The smallest doll, the core of the drama, is the fact that Mubarak, a childhood sissy, grew up to be a different kind of sissy than his father. His father is nerdy and bookish. Mubarak's gay. Everything around that core gets bigger and bigger until finally you can't believe the biggest and the smallest have anything to do with each other. The one is so bloated and the other so tiny. At the beginning of this story, Mubarak's parents are married and in love and both prepare to live far from everything they know to be with each other. At the end of the story, they may still be in love, but they're divorced and an ocean apart and not speaking. And Mubarak is caring for his mother the way a husband might. The, 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 thing, the thing that I really love about the first beginning, um, Elise Spiegel's top two, a story she did recently, is that it, it's basically one long description of a single surprising fact. This boy slept sitting up for seven years. And she just kind of works this detail. And it's an image. It's a visual image. She really engages your imagination. You sort of, you get to sit in it and think, wow, I mean, would he, you know, how would you do that? And, you know, what are the sort of physical implications of of doing that? And, you know, she knew that this was not a detail that she wanted to kind of bury in a later backstory. She wanted to really put this up front. She knew it could carry the beginning and that even though we learn nothing else in this top, we don't know the conflict, we don't know the other characters, 
but there's this compelling, incredible detail sort of drawing you in. The beginning of Scott Carrier's story, the one about giving tests to schizophrenics, it's almost the opposite of, of Elise's kind of spare opening. I mean, he is just cramming information down our throats. I mean, his wife is walking out, he quit his job, he's about to interview schizophrenics. I mean, you really sort of have a feeling by the end, like, is this guy going to make it? You know, like, you, you can't not want to know what happens in the rest of the story. And the last beginning is one, is one I wrote. The, the trick was to, you know, give away the, the ending of the story. In fact, the whole, the whole thing. I just said, look, here are all the characters. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to end up. This is a tragedy. And, you know, the reason to, to do that is that piece of information ends up coloring every other piece of information you hear in the story and gives it this weight. So even moments which are sort of small and nuanced, uh, you know, maybe don't have as much portent as, as you would like to sort of keep people engaged, you still have in the back of your mind where this is going. And the fact that you know where it's going doesn't make you think, I mean, if we were just machines taking in information, you would be like, you know, I have no further need to know I know what happens, but we're not. I mean, we're emotional beings, and what you really want to know a lot of times in a tragedy is not just what happened, but why it happened, how it happened. This, you know, the sort of path each character takes on this road, which is leaning inexorably to this place that they don't want to go. Okay, but so what if your story has no great tragedy at its core? It has no Romanian orphans. There is no schizophrenia. What do you do? Listen to this beginning by David Kestenbaum. Archimedes lived around 200 BC. He's the guy who, legend has it, shouted Eureka in his bathtub, used mirrors to set an enemy ship on fire, and invented a pump that lifts water with a screw. Those stories may or may not be true, but he was certainly one of the great mathematicians and physicists of ancient times. Archimedes wrote letters describing his work. Copies of about a dozen survive, Two in just one place, the Archimedes Palimpsest. A palimpsest is a manuscript that's been written on more than once, and this one resides at the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. It's the ugliest thing in the collection. It is also by far the most important text manuscript uh, in a palimpsest that the world knows. William Knoll is curator of rare books at the Walters. His shirt suggests he's a little too busy for ironing. We walk through a dark exhibit room in the museum. He picks up a secret phone, well, it looks that way, and a door opens. Okay, I just want to point out that you are all laughing about a story about an ancient mathematician and a manuscript with a weird name. He's really being playful, and you can feel, you can feel his energy in telling the beginning of the story. He's like, come with me, this is interesting. I swear, I swear you will be interested in this. And that energy is a really powerful force that we should all draw on in writing beginnings because your interest is something that will draw in other people if you do it in a, in a clever way. So here is another clip from... This story of David's that I really like about the Archimedes palimpsest, um, and, because the whole story is just full of great writing. And um, it turns out that uh, that centuries after Archimedes died, um, someone half erased what he had written and wrote a Christian prayer book on top of it. And the text underneath could only be read by a special scanner. 
And the scan revealed something else. The name of the scribe who erased the Archimedes text and wrote prayers over top. William Knoll at the Walters Art Museum says the man signed his handiwork. It just popped up. It's um, a guy called Johannes Myronas. Johannes Myronas, destroyer of ancient texts. William Knoll says he does not think, Myronas, you jerk. No, I think, I read his name and I think, what a gift he gave us. Uh, because if he hadn't pulled these ancient texts together and he hadn't given them a sort of Christian disguise, they would, have, they would have been destroyed another way. Few things survive for 2,000 years. Governments don't last that long. It was love of math that preserved Archimedes' work for the first millennium and love of God that carried it to the present. I mean, he really sort of wrote a, a funny little response to sort of you know, the emotion that you would think is sort of floating around in this, this, this archive about who this guy is, you know, Johannes Myronas, my God, man, what have you done? And he uses that to, to sort of pivot to, to the last piece of tape where he gives the chance, the, the, you know, the, uh, the curator a chance to, to respond and say, hey, you know, is this how you felt? And he says, no, that's not how I felt, actually. So, you know, he sort of sets up, yes, he, you know, he's this bad guy, he raised the text. And then the guy comes in and says, actually, no, see it this other way. And the writing that David ends the story with, I think, is just great because it just sort of pulls back. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, the crane shot where you, he says, you know, look, we've been, we've been talking about this text and it's so small. And, you know, and he just reminds us, you know, wow, this has survived for more than 2,000 years. That is really something. And it's, it's poetic. It's great. It's, it's, uh, it's just really a beautiful way to end the story. That's Nancy Updike of This American Life talking about one of our other featured speakers this hour, David Kestenbaum. Today on ReSound, we're taking you behind the scenes to listen to great producers talk about how they make their work great. Sometimes it falls into place pretty easily. And then there are the other times. Here again is Nancy Updike. Sometimes you get really good tape. And more often, in my experience, I'm sure this doesn't happen to any of you, I get tape that's kind of so-so. But you still have to make it work. And, I mean, it's so-so in the sense that, you know, it's not terrible, but it's just not spectacular. It's not like, wow, I could play two minutes of this and without writing anything around it, and people would just be like, whoa, this is great. That is, is pretty rare, I think, you know, writing is the, is the rescue for that much more common problem. So uh, I want to play part of a story. It's from a This American Life show called The Golden Apple. It's about 24 hours at this all-night diner in Chicago. I took the very early morning shift. And a lot of the people I talked to, besides the fact that it was early morning, um, were not um, natural storytellers. Every morning I'm here between 4.30 and 5.00. I love the Golden Apple. They're wonderful people. They got good food. And uh, that's it. This is how Joe Molica ends every sentence. And uh, that's it. Or sometimes. That's all I could tell you. Joe's not used to talking about himself. His story comes out bit by bit. Our entire conversation takes place in a different era. He's completely unselfconscious about calling me honey. He bangs on his coffee cup with his spoon to get the waitress's attention for a refill. Please don't try this at home. But he gets away with it. I do construction, remodeling, rehab. 
and that's what I do. I retired. I'm 78 years old, and I gave the business to my two sons, and that's it. How did you start the, that business? To my dad. My dad done the same thing when I was, I don't know, maybe 10, 11 years old. I started working for him. He was paying me a dime an hour, and that was it. Clean up, sweep up the floors that he's working on. What else you want to know, honey? <laughs> so uh, clearly I had to drag information out of this man. And uh, I just wrote that into the script. You know, this guy's not used to talking. He acts as though whatever he's telling you right now is the last thing he will have to say ever. And uh, that's it. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, just write that in with his sort of endearing retro sexism. And, um, and, and his taciturnness becomes part of the story. You know, when you, when you hear him speak in these clipped sentences, it's revealing of his character rather than being this sort of frustrating, you're kind of waiting for him to, like, get going on a great story. But the easiest way to write in a story is if you get good tape. And I just want to play another clip from this, this show I did about Iraq and then tell the backstory about, about how I got the tape. The U.S. military and the private security contractors working in Iraq who are often ex-military themselves, usually get along, but not always. I was driving around Baghdad International Airport on a Tuesday afternoon with Dave Shu, a six-foot-four former middle school social studies teacher, former army sergeant, current employee of Custer Battles, when he pulled up next to two guys jogging in gray t-shirts that said Army. Hey, guys. Got a minute? I'm not supposed to be running back here, fellas. Well, number one says me. Okay. My boss. Well, uh, my boss is Major General Dempsey, okay, who's well, in charge of the five million people that are in the city of Baghdad. Well, Major, you included. Dem Major Dempsey then has Major also. General Dempsey. Well, Major General Dempsey then is the one who informed us. As a matter of fact, MOTC, Ministry oh, of Transportation. Okay. Dave climbed down from his truck, and this became a 10 minute argument, complete with finger pointing, getting in each other's faces, almost touching chests. There are tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers living on the airport grounds, which are huge, 11 square miles. And many of them don't realize that even though the airport is used by military helicopters and planes, it's also a civilian airport, guarded in part by a civilian company. And some areas are off limits, even to U.S. soldiers. So Dave spends a lot of time kicking people out of places. Very few respond graciously. Great. Number one, I ain't in your army, okay? Now, I came up here and said, hey, how about you doing me a favor? Now, you want to make it an issue, we can make it an okay, issue. make it an issue. Now, let me tell you something, Major. No, you let me tell you. Go ahead. Tell me. But I'm let me tell you. Those right. I pulled up to you. I asked you politely. Yeah. You, you got an attitude. You did. Right? I got an attitude. I now, got civilians that have been here a couple months. I've been here since freaking July, pal. Oh, whoop-de-doo. How long have you been here? Mark. Good for Mark. you. You're doing your job. But let me tell you yeah, something. Why, why I ask you politely. Now, if you got to make an issue out of it, why don't we take it on up to Mayor Seller? But right now, I'm, right now, I'm telling you, you okay. are unauthorized to okay. be here. You got that? I got that. Then you're move really out. Me. F*** you. It's just one of those moments when you just think... Thank you, God. <laughs> um, by the time this argument happened, I had spent 
three, maybe four hours with this guy. He didn't like reporters. I tried to charm him. He was not charmed. He kept asking me to turn off the tape machine, which I did every time. But I talked him back into, you know, letting me turn it back on. He made it clear he didn't want to be escorting me all over the airport. He made it clear that I was an annoyance to him. I mean, he was just sick of me. He was sick of me from the moment he saw me, and he was sick of me four hours later. (laughs) But by the time this argument happened, he was so used to being sick of me that he didn't ask me to turn off the tape machine. I was not hiding the microphone. I mean, my microphone is like this big. I was sitting in the car and I had it pointed like this. They were standing right out the car. Neither one of them said, turn off the tape machine. And I didn't. And, you know, for him to say to me afterward, you're not going to use that, dude. (laughs) I have really found again and again that the best way to get good tape is to hang around as long as you possibly can. Way, way past the point that they have dropped, like... 10 or 20 hints that they don't want you to be there anymore. Um, uh, Margie, Margie Rockland, who writes celebrity profiles for big magazines, once told me that her reporting technique was to hang around with the person literally until they threw her out the door. <laughs> and she said, you know, I just, I don't know any other way to report. And I, I do find that sort of comfort, you know, kind of paying attention to the other person's comfort or your own is the enemy of good reporting because it's not going to feel good a lot of the time. Like people are going to find you annoying and you are going to be bored. And you can, you, know, you can have an interview that goes really well and you'll think, God, I've got everything I need. I've got more than I need. And in every interview I do, I get to a point where I feel like, I'm done here. Let me go. <laughs> And I view it as a bad temptation, and I force myself to stay past that point. And sometimes nothing interesting happens afterward. And I just sort of view that as the price I pay, because a lot of times something interesting does happen from staying around longer than you want to. You think of extra questions. You think of some person that you want to talk to that this person will be able to put you in touch with some scene unfolds, spending time and keeping your eyes and ears open with someone for as long as possible is, is, um, is key. Nancy Updike, speaking at the 2006 Third Coast Festival Conference. Now, everyone who makes radio can tell you about the years spent making colossal mistakes and basically learning by disaster. Case in point, Joe Frank. Joe Frank has done pretty much all there is to do in radio hosted All Things Considered, won every major award, and created a style so unique, his name is now like an adjective, as in, you know, it's very Joe Frank. Sometimes mistakes, even Joe Frank mistakes, can be blessings in disguise. Here's a perfect example from the man himself, Joe Frank. As a monologist on the radio, it was always very important, uh, the quality and the timbre and the, the, the way my voice sounded. Uh, and I was very self-conscious about it. It was always very important. Many years into my career, one day I was, I had record, I w- would always record in Dolby. And I had recorded uh, a monologue in Dolby and I was editing it, listening to it, and it sounded remarkably wonderful. And uh, uh, it, the voice quality was just searing and, and gritty. And I was thinking, my God, what? This is amazing what you're doing. Uh, how did you? Uh, 
And then an engineer came in and he said, what's the matter with you? You, you, uh, this, you recorded this in Dolby and you're playing it back in non-Dolby. That's why you have, you have too much hiss. And, and, uh, and then I realized that, uh, you know, it, and he switched it back to Dolby and then it was my normal voice, which I despised. And, uh, <laughs> and then I went back to the, the non-Dolby, which was full of pops and uh, crackles in my mouth, which were a problem that I had to edit out. But the, the, the quality of it was astonishing to me, and so that was what I did in, in the future. I always recorded in Dolby, played back in non-Dolby, and presented the non-Dolby version of my voice with all the mouth noises and pops edited out. <laughs> and uh, so we have uh, an illustration of pre-error Joe Frank and post-mistake uh, Joe Frank. So you'll hear the difference. The idea of cataclysm was not so improbable or remote. Tremors were recorded every few weeks Isn't that and hideous? a major earthquake had been predicted. The mountains were moving to the ocean and the coast highway built between the mountains and the ocean buckled under the advancing pressure. When fires started, most of them caused by arsonists, they spread quickly, fueled by the Santa okay, and the winds. I think we've heard enough of that the one. Fires burned off the and you'll also notice another thing, uh, which I, I noticed it was a plaintive kind of quality. I would end a sentence on a slight up note instead of going down. And so there are two differences. The other is this one, you'll see. I'm sitting at a dinner party attended by Paul Pot, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao. Seated at another smaller table, or Saddam Hussein, Slobodan Milosevic, Pinochet, and some others that I don't recognize. And then there's a third table, sort of a children's table. It has shorter legs and smaller children's chairs. And sitting there are Richard Speck, Gary Gilmore, Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, and Charlie Manson. And they're all wearing party hats. They're not very much respected by the heavyweights. They were small time. They didn't get much done. <laughs> they were pikers. So you can hear the difference. And have you stuck with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no going back. No going back, no. That was Joe Frank at the 2003 Third Coast Festival Conference. Today on ReSound, we took a break from audio art to talk about the art behind the audio. We have hours and hours of the best producers in radio talking about what they do so well and how they do it. It's all on our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. Check it out and make some radio. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production assistant is Delaney Hall. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live 
everywhere else.